So it's really a time of the arising of spring. We've come through some moisture and darkness, and the sun has been out a lot for a week. It's kind of fantastic to go out in it, remember that it's still there. And so tonight in speaking, there's a way in which I want to celebrate that turning, the sun coming back, and also connect, if I can, with uh, those who came the last two weeks. Two weeks ago I talked about retreat practice and the kind of intensive uh, introspection or contemplation that can take place in silence. And then last week about the awakening of wisdom, of anicca, dukkha, anatta, of the understandings of um, the play of impermanence and interdependence, selflessness. So this evening, to continue this theme of the last couple of weeks, I'd like to tell a story of the journey, of the inner journey. And part of the theme of the story is um, of finding an understanding or a light in ourselves. Um, And as you'll hear, the light or the shining doesn't come by turning toward the light, but going into the darkness. That the real awakening and shining comes from the willingness to enter the dark and see that there's richness and beauty in darkness. That out of darkness comes a source of light in the whole universe that's true. If we look in the vast cosmos, there's this great womb of darkness and out of it comes light. The idea in spiritual practice is not to reflect the light, that is to see beautiful things or go to some beautiful concert or hear some beautiful teachings or in some holy place, not to reflect it, but actually to discover it in ourselves, to become the light. So some of the very last words of the Buddha, his advice was to make of yourself a lamp, to be a light unto yourself, to become a light. So in a way, this is a story about finding light. And it's one of the oldest stories in India, dating back to the time of the Buddha or even before when he was a bodhisattva. Long time ago, when you were much younger than you are now, there was a village in North India. And in this village, there was a successful and proud merchant. Merchant means a businessman but they call the merchants in these old stories. A pillar of the community, raised his family, supported the temples, and all those sort of things. But he was starting to get older. And so he began to think about the other world. Remember how we talked about the closeness to the other world as young children and old people. And the ones in the middle who tend to forget are those of us who have mortgages, right? Get further away. 
from that light. So he began to think about the other world. And as it was getting closer, he became a little nervous about his eternal spirit. He had made a lot of money and been successful in some ways, but you can't, you know, do very much with that after you're dead. And so he was worried about it. It's like that story of the person, the man who died, who was very, very wealthy, you know, and made an enormous fortune. And at the end, after he died, someone said, well, how much did he leave? And the person who knew replied, why, everything, of course. I mean, how much do you leave? Yes? So there he was, getting nervous about eternity. So, as a way of insurance, the priests in the local temple persuaded him to make a big donation, make a lot of merit, do this whole big thing, right? And um, so he decided that he was going to give all that he valued, his gold and his cattle, which was the wealth of that time, um, to the temple. And that would kind of ensure him a better birth in the next time, or so he thought. Now his son heard about this and was rather disturbed by it. He saw a kind of hypocrisy or falseness in this kind of uh, religious activity. It's what Joseph Campbell called an inoculation, religion as an inoculation against the true spirit. You do a little bit, you do some rituals or something, and then you don't have to worry about it, rather than know that we live in this mystery of birth and death. Um, It's like the story of W.C. Fields. When he was dying, he was very well known as a kind of an atheist and an agnostic and didn't want anything to do with religion. And there he was lying in a hospital bed, very ill, and one of his close friends came in to see him. And as he walked in the room, he saw W.C. Fields leafing through the Bible. And W.C. Fields saw him come in and quickly closed it and stuck it under the mattress. And his friend said, did I, uh, did I see you? You know, who doesn't believe in any of this, um, leafing through the Bible? And W.C. Fields looked up and he said, oh, just looking for loopholes. <laughs> this young man, the son of the rich merchant, was named Nachiketa in this ancient Indian tale. And Nachiketa saw what we can all see, which is that dimension of falseness and hypocrisy that is there often in parts of the society or even in the organized spirituality and religion around us. And it doesn't take much for a teenager to open their eyes and look around and say, it's not as I was told it was supposed to be, nor for us. I mean, here we live in what is called a great democratic society. Did you know that the religious practice of the Native Americans, of the Indians, was illegal until President Jimmy Carter. That they weren't allowed to do their prayers, have their sweat lodges, do their circles. It was illegal until a law passed by President Carter. This great democracy of ours, right? Um, The law in its majestic equality, says Anatole France, the law in its majestic equality forbids 
both kings and beggars from sleeping under bridges. You know, it's, there's this idea of what's supposed to be right for everyone. But then we look around um, in an honest way and we see that we still live in a racist society and that the enormous number of prisons, more money for prisons than schools, um, that a lot of the prisons have become poverty prisons. That people are born into a class or situation of so much poverty that there's almost nothing to do to, to survive except the things that they do that throw them in prison. Or we look at this great country that we can love, its ideals and its, its vision, and then realize that we were one of the only two or three countries in the entire world that would not sign the worldwide ban on landmines because we were afraid that our army wasn't strong enough without them. Everybody else signed it. It's insane and it's shameful. And so this young man, Nachiketa, looked and he saw very clearly the hypocrisy around him. And he saw as well that the way that his father was trying to create happiness was false. And we can see that. The Buddha saw it. He saw people seeking happiness, often doing the very thing that would create unhappiness. By trying to possess, by looking for security in the wrong places, by grasping and jealousy, by fear, by struggle and hatred. All these things trying to make ourselves safe or happy in a world that we know will change and that those are not the source of happiness. The source of happiness is in the heart. So the big day came. Here's the temple and the priests and this man giving all this stuff. And as he's giving his things away, he says, now I give all of my great fortune that I value to build this temple in the town square with everyone around. And his son says, all you value, it's just some old cows and some gold. You know, you don't, not giving away all you value for this name on the temple. I mean, how about me? Do you value me? And so he, in a way, he shamed his father in the midst of this great public ceremony, as only a teenage son can do. <laughs> and his father looked back at him and said, I give you, I give you to death which is a way of saying, drop dead, basically, you know. <laughs> if somebody, his son, is taunting and shaming him in the midst of this great act of generosity, or so he believed. And his, the young man looked back at him, crossed his arms over his chest and said, fine, I accept. You see, he was a young man, as both young men and women are, um, of necessity, who was looking for danger or meaning, or a challenge, something more than just the outward forms of security that society presents. And in wise societies, we offer initiations to young men and women. In the places where I became a monk in the monasteries of Thailand and Burma, almost every young person would go in the monastery for three months or a year and surrender and practice and live in the forest and learn uh, the things that would make them ripe to be an adult. Um, 
But when we don't have initiations for our youth, for men or women, to prove themselves, to show, to enter the world of adults, then we get young people trying to make their own initiations. You know, whether it's bungee jumping or going to war or doing it out on the road with fast cars and drugs and weapons or having babies when you're very young to show that you're an adult. We're a society that has lost the ability to initiate its youth. So here's Nachiketa saying that I'm ready for initiation. Is there anything dangerous to do around here? I want to do it, basically. And for all of us, if we are serious in our spiritual life, we either need to turn toward that which is difficult or wait a little bit and it will come to us. <laughs> but there requires a kind of descent. Spiritual life sometimes people think of as going up to some place, but it's not. It's really down through the body, through the heart, through into the earth. Into, the, into what is unseen. And the first thing that happened, Nachiketa said, all right, I will go and seek death. And he went out into the forest by himself, and he sat for three days and three nights unmoving. He was willing to just wait until death would come and find him, this kind of descent. And in fact, if one undertakes a meditation practice over time um, or a prayer practice, some spiritual, um, some spiritual vessel, some uh, boat that will carry us into the stream, it requires getting down into the hold, getting into it. There's a descent. Um, and all it takes really is our willingness to stop our normal busyness and activity, which is what he did. All you have to do is stop, and it all starts to come to you. So that on retreats, people will come, and they'll sit for a day or two and start to get quiet, and then their body starts to hurt. All the tension that they've carried for the last five years and not really listened to is there in them. Or they come and they're so sleepy, and they realize they're exhausted, and their body says, remember me? Or the emotions, the unfinished business, the grief, the, the things that we carry, we stop and get a little bit quiet and they come and say, here I am, and the tears start to come. So to, to make the descent just requires the prayer or the listening or the willingness to open with our attention to stop. Now, Sylvia Borstein, who many of you know, who teaches here as a friend, just returned from a retreat. She told me this story. And there was a man who, she was teaching on the East Coast, who lived in, I don't know, I'll say New York, um, and a middle-aged man. And he was sitting on his retreat, and after a few days, he came into her very upset because he said he'd had a traumatic experience and he thought he'd put it behind him but it didn't happen that way. And it kept replaying day after day in his meditation. And what happened is that he had been walking down a street in New York at some point, and then a young man who was obviously 
um, intoxicated in some fashion, came up to him and put a gun in his chest and said, give me your money. And he got out. He happened to have a lot of money with him for some reason. And he gave him hundreds of dollars and stuff. And the guy said, I'm going to kill you, whatever. And he said, here, I've, I've forgotten some things. You take some more, give him his watch and so forth. And then he put it aside the next day, went to work. And the next week and the next month. And two years later, he sat in meditation. And guess what was there as soon as he closed his eyes? All the fear and the the adrenaline and all that that was unprocessed. Do you understand? And yet when it's there in us and we don't pay attention, it moves in our life. So to make the descent only asks that we stop and listen. And here's Nachiketa sitting three days and three nights without moving. This is like the way you enter a Zen temple. It's called Tangario in Japan. If you want to enter a Zen temple, they don't let you just go in come say, hi, I'm ready to start Zen. If you want to enter, you have to sit outside of the gates for several days and prove that you're ready to enter the temple as a monk or as a monk in training. And often it's done in winter. You have to sit out in the snow for three days. And they look and they say, oh yeah, there's another one out there. Let's see how he does, right? How she's doing out there. And they watch, peek out once in a while, or a few days. Well, three, four days are up. I think they're ripe. Okay, let them in. Um, which is to say, there's a willingness to be really honorable in taking the spiritual journey. That I want to know what's inside and where I can come to peace, where I can truly find freedom in the midst of everything of this life I've been given. So he sat and he sat. And you know, if you sit for an hour and don't move, it gets painful. How about all day and all night? Fire, flames, pain, all the things of life came and passed before his eyes and he did not move. And it's the steadiness of just doing the meditation over and over again, or one's prayers, or the things that one does as a practice of surrender that begin to crack the shells of our heart and body, open us. It's like Annie Lamott, the wonderful writer in the neighborhood. She writes, I have a tape of a Tibetan nun singing a mantra of compassion over and over for an hour, eight words over and over, and every line feels cared about, different, experienced deeply as she's singing. You never once have the sense that she's glancing down at her watch thinking, Jesus Christ, it's only been 15 minutes. Forty-five minutes later, she's still singing each line distinctly, word by word, until the last prayer is sung. Mostly things are not way, that simple, that pure, with so much focus and grace given to each syllable of life as it sings itself. But that kind of attention and steadiness is the prize. So, uh, so he sits there, Nachiketa, and he says, I will sit and face whatever there is for me to face. I want to find something deeper. And then after three days, he arrived in the kingdom of death. And he asked for the Lord of death, known as Lord Yama, the king of death, who's also called the great accountant, the administrator of the law. Um, and someone met him and said, you know, um, may I help you? And he said, I'm looking for the Lord of death. 
And he said, he's not here, he's out collecting rent. Um, and his, only his assistants are around, pestilence, war, and famine, maybe depression. And the young man said, that's fine, I'll wait however long it takes. So this was a kind of unusual young man. And when death returned, his assistant said, there's a rather unusual young man who's been waiting for you. And death was surprised because when most people see death coming, they run the other way. But here was a young man waiting, not running, but come to see. And so the Lord of Death said, well, how long? Lord Yama said, how long has he been here? He said, for three days. So death went to find Nachiketa and greeted him and said, you know, presented himself, I am the Lord Yama, king of death. Nachiketa said, and I am Nachiketa, and I've been waiting for you. And the Lord of Death said, and how long have you been waiting? And he said, three days, three nights I've been waiting here. And Death looked at him and said, forgive my rudeness for not being here when you arrived. And because you have waited so steadily, for each day that you have waited, I will grant you a boon. That is a blessing that you may have for the journey you are on, for I see you are a young man in search of something. And Nachiketa thanked him. And Lord Yama said, so what would these three blessings be that you choose on this journey? Nachiketa reflected for a moment, and he was a wise young man. He said, the first blessing that I would ask for for this journey is the blessing of forgiveness. And he looked at Lord Yama and he said, let my father's heart be free of anger. Let him see me with that original purity as it was the first day I was born his son. And Lord Yama said, the blessing of forgiveness is granted. You see, if we take this inner journey, the willingness to listen deeply to the body, the heart, the mind, to seek that light in the beauty of the darkness, there is inevitably a certain dimension of healing that we must pass through. The barriers of the heart, the betrayals that each one of us has carried, the grief that is a part of human life. And the only way those open is with our mercy and our kindness. It is that poem that I've loved to read from Galway Canal about St. Francis and the sow, where St. Francis puts his hand on the creased forehead of the sow and tells her in words and touch blessings of the earth on the sow. He's reteaching the sow her loveliness. We all need to relearn our loveliness. And tells her in words and touch blessings of the earth, and the sow begins remembering all down her thick length, from the earthen snout all the way through the fodder and slops, to the spiritual curl of her tail, the long, perfect loveliness of sow. Sometimes it is necessary 
to put a hand on the brow of the flower, to put a hand on our own being and remind us of our loveliness. And in a way, forgiveness is this. Forgiveness is to say, yes, there has been so much sorrow and so much beauty and so much pain and struggle and so much joy, all of this in my life. And I accept this, I bow to it without resentment. I will continue and open to something new. It is, as someone said, forgiveness is giving up all hope for a better past. (laughs) And forgiveness becomes the first of the lights that lets our life change, because if we're caught in hatred, we can't really open the heart. To forgive doesn't mean that we condone what happened. We may say, never again will I let this happen. Nor does it mean to forget, for forgive and forget. It means we acknowledge it, and yet in the end, we do not carry the burden of hatred. We do not put anyone out of our heart. And so Nachiketa knew this. He knew that he couldn't continue his journey without this openness of heart for his father, for those around him, and even more, perhaps, for himself, because we have so much to forgive in ourselves, to really love. You know the story of those Japanese soldiers that were left on the islands as the war swept back across the Pacific and were abandoned there and hiding and often didn't know that the war had ended. All those stories, you know. And some years after that, different ones were heard about and Sometimes people would find them, but once in a while there were one who were hidden in the caves and forests. And they believed they were good soldiers trying to defend their families, their country. And you wonder, well, how would they be treated when they were found five, ten, fifteen years later? They weren't considered misguided or foolish. Instead, when one of these soldiers was located, the first contact was always made carefully, someone who'd been an officer during the war would take out their old uniform and their samurai sword. They'd get an old military boat and go to the island where the lost soldier was. And the officer would walk through the forest, the jungle, call out for the soldier until he was found. And when they met, the officer would thank the soldier with a deep bow for loyalty and courage in defending his country for so many years and ask about how it was to be so many years away and welcome him back. And only after some time would the soldier gently be told that the war was over, the country at peace again, there was no need to fight anymore. And when he reached home, he would be welcomed and thanked and given reunion for all the struggle he had made. This is a story of forgiveness for ourselves. So little mercy for the things that we've done to try to survive. And finally to offer that to us too. I'll tell you a little more of that story of Sylvia and the man in New York. So the gun is in his chest and the guy's saying, I'm gonna kill you, I'm gonna kill you, somewhat dazed. And he says, wait, wait. He said, you you forgot some things, kind of to distract him. 
because he's working himself up to do it. And here, how about my watch? And he gives him that. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. He wait, I've got some other things. And he's giving him everything. And the guy's still starting to get worked. I'm going to shoot you. I'm going to kill you. And finally, he said, something came to him and he looked at him and he said, you don't have to kill me. You've done really good. You've got $800. You've got my watch. You've got my wallet. You can go back and tell your friends you really did good. You have really done good. You've done so well. And he looked at him that way and he said his eyes softened and he just turned and walked away. And maybe that's what we're all waiting for in that moment. For somebody just to look at us with uh, those eyes, the eyes of the beloved, the glance of mercy, and say, you've done good, you're fine, you've done well. So this is the ground of the journey. As then Master Ryokan said, Oh, that my priest's robes were wide enough to gather up all the suffering people in this floating world. Oh, that my heart were big enough to ask forgiveness for myself and all beings. You can hear in forgiveness how much letting go there is so that we can be born anew. Granted that, then Lord Yama looked back at Nachiketa and said, that was a wise wish. You have two more boons I will offer you. What will you choose? And the second blessing Nachiketa asked of Lord Yama, he said, I ask for fire, the fire of life. You know, and this is just a little aside, I'm really telling a young man's story. Um, But instead of sitting for three days in the forest, you know, you could tell the story in a whole other version where my wife, for example, giving birth to our daughter Caroline, was in labor for three days and three nights, this really long labor. And it was the same thing. So what Nachiketa wanted this second time was the fire of life. That is, he wanted aliveness, energy, passion, the fire of breath and body and heart. Because to awaken is not just the kind of, okay, I'll come and I'll do my meditation or walk through the mountains or be quiet or do my prayer. It takes a a wholeness of our being, a willingness to really not just get through life, but give ourselves fully. What is to give light must endure burning. And in some ways, we may have lost that sense of fullness in our lives at times. And to enter a spiritual journey is in a way to recapture it. There's a kind of innocence and and wholeness that we all know about in some moments. One of my favorite stories that illustrates this is a, a long, wonderful book by Lawrence Vanderpost, who writes amazing stories of Africa where he grew up in. And in this one, in a far off place, he's writing about these two young survivors, young children who are being taken across the Kalahari Desert by, these, by this bushman who's a very wise man. And somewhere way out in the middle of the desert, um, they hear a lion roar, 
Imagine you're out in the Kalahari, it's night, you're far from anywhere, and this lion roars under the stars, and the bushman gets so excited he starts laughing and smiling and jumping up and down and saying, it is he, it is he. And the children, the teenagers who he's taking, their eyes get wide and they say, he, who is he? And he says, oh, it is old black lightning. That's the name that this bushman has given to this particular lion, because he knew them. They had a black mane. And then he says, he explains there, the three most beautiful things in the world are a falling star, a rainbow, and the roar of a lion. And the boy who's with him, who loved lions, grew up in Africa, answers and said, this lion sounds unlike any other lion's roar I've ever heard. Why is that? And the bushman said, because this lion does not know humans. He's never lived at the edge of the settlements where you've heard the lions. This is a lion of the desert. This is the lion as the lion's first roar. So this is what Nachiketa asked for. He asked to refine that wholeness, that song, that roar, that fullness of being, to reawaken in that way for the fire of life. And for this journey, we need it to face our fears, our boredom, our anger, our pain, all the things that a human being carries, and to really sit in the midst of them requires that. I remember a story from World War II of a priest in Denmark after it was captured by the Nazi Germans, and he worked for the underground trying to save the lives of gypsies and homosexuals and all the people that were being persecuted. And finally he was found out in some way and called in to be interrogated by the Nazi commandant, you know, all those scenes in the movies that we see. And so here's the room with the light hanging in the table, you know, and it's nighttime, and the priest is on one side and the officer is on the other. And they start the interview and the officer unbuckles his uh, holster and puts his luger, his gun, on the table and looks at the priest to start the interrogation. And the priest looks back at him and opens his bag and takes his Bible out and puts it on the table. And the officer says, why did you put that there? And he said, and the priest looks back and he said, you placed your weapons on the table. Why shouldn't I do the same? There is in all of us a longing to be whole, to give our lives to something beautiful, um, not to what is small or trivial, to live in that way. As Rilke says, you see, I want a lot. Perhaps I want everything. The darkness that comes with every infinite fall and the shivering blaze of every step up. So many live on and want nothing and are raised to the rank of prince or princess by the slippery ease of their light judgments. Or we could say to the rank of senator or congressperson by the slippery ease of their light judgments. But what you love to see are faces that do work and feel thirst. You love most of all those who need life as they need a crowbar or a hoe. You have not grown old and it is not too late 
to dive into your increasing depths where life calmly gives out its own secret. So he asked for this life, this aliveness in the midst of everything. And Lord Yama looked at him and said, this too I grant you. And as he granted it, his body filled with light. And it's not just an image, it's a literal experience. We are made of that too. You'll see. <laughs> Sooner or later, you will see. I have a friend who uh, did murals. She paints, she's a mural painter and artist. And she went down to Nicaragua during the revolution time and she would paint murals and she said sometimes we would go in the morning and find that um, the murals had gunshots, bullet holes in them, you know, or we'd go and we'd find the scaffolding we built had been um, untied so if we were to go up on it we would die. She said, and I was with these young people, I was teaching them to paint and they were painting the murals of the revolution. She said, and every day they would say, we have to go back and paint some more. There's a kind of indomitable spirit and it's not fighting against the world. It is putting your whole being into the truth. So then Nachiketa had one last blessing. Forgiveness and the wholeness of heart, that fire. The third blessing that he asked for, Lord Yama said, you have one more boon, one more wish. You know how all these fairy tales go, you know, you get three wishes. And what will your last wish be? Nachiketa looked back at him quite reflectively and said, I ask for Amaravati, which means the deathless. I ask for the secret of that which is beyond death, of immortality, the eternal. And Lord Yama looked back at this young man and he said, are you sure this is your last wish, you know? You could have anything. You could have celestial maidens and he caused to appear an incredible array of beautiful and sensual scenes. Nachiketa was indeed intrigued by that. Heavenly maidens, what would you like? How many? What circumstances? Or he said, you could have the greatest war chariot. It's like offering a Ferrari. Here, look at this. This golden chariot with the most incredible steeds of the world and you driving it. You know, I mean, he is, after all, a young man, right? What kind of car do you want? You can be a king, here's a palace, your children, your grandchildren, a place of honor. Everything he could imagine. A rock star, right? Michael Jordan, anything, what do you want? Anachiketa saw all these things pass before his eyes. As we do, we're asked this question, what do we want? And he sat reflecting about it for a moment and shook his head no. And Lord Yama said, so what do you wish? 
Nachiketa said, let me ask you a question about all that you have shown to me. Will not all of it soon enough pass away and return to your own kingdom? And Lord Yama said, in fact, yes, that's true. No matter what it is, it comes back to that land of death. Nachiketa said, then it will not satisfy me. I will not be satisfied. What I would know is that which is deathless. I want to awaken, to open to that light or to that understanding that is unshakable, unalterable. And Lord Yama, seeing this young man was a true yogi, was a true seeker of the, you know, the spirit, said, I cannot give this to you, for it is nothing you can gain or grasp. It is only by your heart's vision that you can know this, but I can help you to find this third boon. And so he said, I have one last gift for you so that you may receive this third blessing. And Lord Yama turned around and returned and placed into Nachiketa's hand a mirror. He said, my instructions for you, if you would ask this question, what is it that is not seen by the Lord of death? Which is a question that was asked by the Buddha, asked to the Buddha. Um, what is it or how is it that one is not seen by the Lord of death? I give you this mirror and you must look in this mirror and ask a simple question. Who am I really? This is your question. It's every human being's question. In the Zen tradition, um, it says in the koan, the question is, what was your face before your mother was born? This face is a mask. What is your true face before you were born? Or in a, another of the Buddhist tradition, it says, who is dragging this body around? You know how you drag it through the day at some times. Yes? And we get identified with it so easily. My teacher Nisargadat in India said, people would say, um, how is it to get old? And he said, I'm not getting old. I refuse to accept the false questions. And this is only the food body. That's not who I am. You know yourself only through the senses. You take yourself to be what they suggest. To myself, I'm neither describable or perceivable. There's nothing I can point to and say, this I am and that I am not. You identify with everything so easily. For me, this is impossible. For wisdom sees that I am nothing, and love sees that I am everything. Between these two, my life flows. So this is the question, and it's the question that's given to a Buddhist monk when they first ordain in the forest depths with the circle of elders. The first meditation that's given is, who are you really? Are you this body, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, hair, skin, heart, lungs? Is that who you are? You just rent this. This is kind of, you know, Avis, right? <laughs> One lifetime, and you wear it out and you turn it back in. 
the question was asked by Zen Master Kusan of Nine Mountains when he came to our three-month retreat that we do every year in Massachusetts at the end. And there are these people, hundred people have been sitting three months and walking three months and very still, paying attention, listening. And he looked at them all and he said, Ah, oh, this practice you're doing, this is no good. You know, their hearts all sank. Three months, I've wasted my time trying to be mindful and pay attention. He said, this is no good. Their eyes were quite wide, you know, even though their heart sank. He said, only one practice. Took up his Zen stick, kind of pounded it on. What is this? What is this? Who are you? What is this? And that really is the practice of attention. It's the same practice to see what is this. Thoughts come and go, feelings come and go, our imagination we can turn in a moment and a whole fantasy arises and then turn in a moment and it disappears and that world's gone and a new one appears. Who is it that knows all of this that arises and passes away is the question. What is this? This from the Buddha again. I consider the position of kings and rulers as that of dust motes in a sunbeam. I see the treasures of gold and gems as but broken tiles. I look upon the finest silken robes as tattered rags. I see the myriad worlds of the universe as small seeds in the great Indian Ocean as drops of mud at one's feet. I perceive the teachings of the world to be the illusions of magicians and look upon the judgment of right and wrong as the serpentine drants of the dragons and the rise and fall of beliefs as but traces left by the four seasons. Is there a place that we know that sees all of this come and go? It's called the one who knows, this place of wisdom in the center of our heart or our being. It is nearer than near. When my teacher Ajahn Jamnian is here in May, he likes to come. And he'll have people pay attention to their skeleton. He'll say, take your bones for a walk. Feel the muscles of your body. And now be aware of that which knows this body, muscles, bones, all these things. Rest in that pure place of knowing. Not in the things of the world, but in that which is before it. As Thomas Merton said, life is this simple. We are living in a world that is absolutely transparent and the divine is shining through all the time. This is not just a fable or a nice story. This is the way that it is. So it's not in things or accomplishment, but in that vision that sees all things rise and pass and can rest in the great heart of compassion and ease and openness, which is your true nature, your Buddha nature, your awakened nature. And this is the opening of the wisdom eye. May you rest in that. If we could only see each other as we really are, says Thomas Merton, before all the things we try to be, that divine place inside, there would be no more need for war or struggle or hatred or cruelty. He said, I suppose the big problem would be 
that we would be falling down and worshiping each other. So in looking in the mirror, Nachiketa came to that place of perfect stillness within which the dance of life rises and falls like one's breath and thoughts and feelings of joy and sorrow. And he rested in that place for a time, not grasping, not saying, this is me and that isn't, or this is what I want and that I don't, but feeling his oneness with the dance and beyond it. And looked up at Lord Yama, who smiled. And then in a moment, Nachiketa found himself sitting back in the forest in India, again having returned from the land of death. And he got up with a clear heart, a great sense of joy, and returned back to the village of his birth. Now, a question for you as we come to near the end of this story. What is it that brought Nachiketa back to the world? If he let go of all of that, forgiveness, finding that great sense of dharma, passion of aliveness, of fullness, and then opening beyond the sense of self, this small self, the body of fear, to that which is timeless, then what brings Nachiketa back? I'll half answer my question to you. It's a way to end. The teachings from the Lama Kalu Rinpoche, who said, you live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality, but you do not know this. And when you understand it, you will see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. And here's the second part of the answer. This is Black Elk standing on Harney Peak on the great mountain that he climbed for his vision. He said, there I was standing on the highest mountain of them all, and round about beneath me was the whole circle, the hoop of the world. And as I stood there, I saw more than I can tell, for I was seeing in a sacred manner the shape of all things in the spirit as they live together. And I saw the sacred hoop of my people was one of the many circles that made a wide hoop as wide as daylight and starlight and in the center grew one mighty flowering tree that shelters all the children of one mother and one father. And I saw that it was holy. But you must remember that anywhere is the center of the world, that anywhere is holy ground. That's the holiness, or Allen Ginsberg's poem, everything is holy. Everybody's holy, everywhere is holy, every day is holy, and everyone lives in eternity. <coughs> so Nachiketa found this place of trust and freedom 
where the breath breathes itself and life appears as it does in the springtime. And everything comes, the 10,000 blessings of the world unfold and we participate in them. And he came back because he was not separate from all of that. So let's sit for a moment and I have one more question for you. As you sit, reflecting quietly, listening, the breath breathes itself. A question for you to reflect on Often in the course of a story, there'll be a particular scene or moment or image that captures your attention especially, that has some meaning, as if there's some way you could place yourself at that point in the story. The question is, where would you place yourself in this story? Are you uh, that person who is about to give away all you own? Or are you the person who looks around at the hypocrisy of the society? Or are you in the place of asking forgiveness? Or the place of seeking that fire of passion to live more fully? Are you in the place of sitting and waiting for death? or in the place of returning, or one of the other places, where would you find yourself in the story? So just a few minutes before we have a little chant to go, five minutes maybe, let me ask a few people, where were you in the story if you had to place yourself or could find a place for yourself there? Where are you? Someone? Yes? I was um, asking the second question. You were asking the second question for that fire of life, that passion. Thank you. Yes? I was asking to know that which is deathless, not beyond the world of impermanence. Someone else? On the long, perfect loveliness of the sow. On the long, perfect loveliness of the sow, the place of blessing. Someone else? I think we're at all places, 
every one of the characters, we have some of that. I think we're at all places, every one of the characters. You can identify with each place. It's true. And at the same time, we're in all places, and in a particular day we might also be more in one place than another. But it's all in us. You're right. Someone else. Yes? I was at the gate in the snow. I was at the gate in the snow, sitting Tangario, waiting to see if they're going to let me into the temple. Fantastic place to be sitting. Yes, thank you. I was there for Lord Yama's smile. As Yama, you were Lord Yama's smile. The smile, yes, when he understood. <coughs> Beautiful. Yes. Forgiveness for my father to be seeing me with eyes my first day on the earth. I am at the place asking forgiveness that my father might see me with the original purity, the eyes, as he saw me my first day on the earth. Thank you. Yes. Someone else. Yes. Forgiveness as well. Um, seeing myself with my son's eyes. Forgiveness as well. Seeing myself with my son's eyes. Hmm. Nobody's giving away all their gold to the temple tonight, huh? <laughs> There's place for everything, you know. So this is a beautiful exercise to do with story, not just with simple story, but with these ancient myths that are passed on for thousands of years because they hold in them like a storehouse this great understanding of the human journey in some way or other. So then um, a couple of announcements, a little chant, and we'll go. I didn't announce that in a couple of weeks, March 13th to 15th, I'm doing a weekend retreat down at uh, Mount Madonna near Watsonville on the perils and promises of spiritual life. There's some flyers out for that. Thank you for your donations, for the money you give to come to the class. It, it helps Spirit Rock run and grow and have its staff and mow its grass and all the things that allow it to, to function and to serve people. So your support is very gratefully accepted and whatever else you give it's we're very grateful for um, the last announcement came from a woman who comes sometimes on Monday night who is a, a policewoman um, and she was concerned she came in and she said you know people come here and they come and they meditate and they hear a Dharma talk or have some discussion and they get a little bit quieter and more in touch with themselves perhaps and it's beautiful and then I watch them as they drive away, you know. She said, and they go out on the highway where everybody else is going 55, and they're like going 25 or 30 miles an hour. She said, and I'm concerned that they're not harmonizing with the world around them, and there could be some danger in that. So just as one needs to be willing to descend, one also needs to ascend, right? So drive politely in the parking lot with all those cars. It's a good place to practice driving meditation. And then when you enter the world of other beings, enter in a harmonious way. So let's do a little chant. The chant tonight is a simple chant of a bowing to. The greeting in India is Namaste, 
which means I honor the divine within you, or I bow to the sacred in you. And that root word in Sanskrit and Pali is namo, which means to bow to. So let's just chant namo a number of times. And as you do, you can bow to forgiveness or to the deathless or to that place of passion or to the healing touch of attention and compassion of the sow. Um, you can bow to whatever arises in your heart and mind. We'll do that a little bit and then we'll leave. Namo 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 Harmony place of stillness and great silence in your heart this week and that you can bow to all things and rest in the midst of them. Thank you. And again, drive politely. See you soon. Good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.